0: Hey true crime fans, welcome back to Murder on the Map. Each week on my show, I'll take you through a bizarre, underreported, or ice-cold case in each U.S. state one by one. Today's show is the season one finale, and it's also a special edition Christmas episode. And in full transparency, it's been a really difficult episode for me to research and write, which is why it's coming out a lot later than I wanted it to. While it's never fun to report on true crimes involving children, it seems extra terrible to do it at Christmas. So, with the exception of one case, I tried to leave the kids out of it. With all that being said, season one finale, let's go. These are some of the weirdest Christmas crimes ever to be committed in the United States. (music) Christmas is supposed to be about spending time with friends and family, eating too many cookies, and getting some much-needed PTO. Unfortunately, crime happens 365 days a year, with no exceptions for major holidays. Murder is tragic no matter what time of year it happens, but when it happens at Christmas, it makes it that much harder for the loved ones of victims to cope, like in the case of these notorious crimes that are basically the opposite of the holiday spirit. The murder of Sharon Aidlot. On Christmas Eve 2013, 17-year-old William Aidlot beat and stabbed his mother Sharon to death. He was arrested after her body was found with a knife sticking out of her eye socket and he immediately confessed to the murder. Two and a half years later, William was found not guilty by reason of insanity. According to his psychiatrist, William suffers from schizophrenia and he believed he was doing the right thing by obeying auditory hallucinations that were commanding him to kill his mother. Since it was determined he would be a danger to the public if released, he was involuntarily committed to a secure state hospital. With the not guilty verdict, if William was rehabilitated and his mental illness stabilized with medication and therapy, he could potentially be released one day. It happened in the case of Vincent Lee, the schizophrenic man who beheaded a fellow passenger on a Greyhound bus during a delusional episode in 2008, so it could happen for William too but the judge on the case promised that his release would not happen any time in the near future. The Covina Massacre On Christmas Eve 2008, 45-year-old Bruce Pardo knocked on the door at his former in-law's house. His divorce had been finalized one week earlier. Bruce was wearing a Santa suit. His in-laws were hosting a Christmas Eve party at the time that was attended by about 25 people. He had a gift-wrapped package containing a homemade flamethrower, as well as at least five different handguns. He started shooting randomly and then used the flamethrower to set the house on fire, killing nine people and injuring three more. After the attack, Pardo left the burning house and drove to his brother's house where he shot and killed himself. Police speculate that Pardo's marital problems and the fact that he was ordered to pay his wife $10,000 in their divorce settlement is what sparked the attack. He killed his ex-wife, both of her parents, and three of her siblings in the attack. Fourteen children lost at least one parent that night because of what he did. The Santa Claus Bank Robbery on December 23, 1927, ex-cons Marshall Ratliff, who is dressed as Santa Claus, Henry Helms, Robert Hill, and Louis Davis held up a First National Bank in Cisco, Texas. The robbery resulted in the largest manhunt the state had ever seen, and the police actually released a generic photo of Santa Claus to the public to ask if anyone had seen the culprit. In Texas during this time three or four banks were being robbed every single day and the Texas Bankers Association were offering a five thousand dollar reward to anyone who shot a bank robber. That inspired a number of residents in the area to start shooting at the robbers and the robbers returned their gunfire. Multiple people were injured in this process with two police officers dying from their injuries. Ratliff and his accomplices were eventually caught and Ratliff was sentenced to 99 years in prison. He was later sentenced to execution for the deaths of the police officers, but filed a lunacy hearing to avoid the electric chair. When the community heard that Ratliff hadn't been executed yet, nearly 2,000 people gathered outside the prison, forced their way inside, and dragged Ratliff out, hanging him in a vacant lot themselves. The robbery and the manhunt are now an enduring part of Cisco, Texas folklore. The Ashland Tragedy of 1881. On the night of December 23, 1881 in Ashland, Kentucky, three teenagers were staying at the Gibbons household while the parents were away. 17-year-old Robert, 14-year-old Franny, and their friend, 15-year-old Emma, were fast asleep when three assailants broke in to wreak havoc. Emma's mom, who lived nearby, looked out the window earlier in the night to check on the kids in the house. Everything had seemed fine then. Later, the sound and sight of flames caught the attention of neighbors. The three teenagers were found bludgeoned to death inside the house. The murder weapons, an axe and a crowbar, were found on the scene, both saturated in blood and hair. There was also evidence that the two girls had been sexually assaulted. It was concluded that the arson was committed in an attempt to cover up the crime. Dawn broke on Christmas Eve and the word of the gruesome murder spread through the town. Although crimes like robbery and drunken fights were the norm in this town in this era, homicides of this nature were not, and the townsfolk were left shocked and appalled. After days of investigation and questioning various people, George Ellis, after displaying signs of guilt, soon confessed to the crime, thinking that it would buy him leniency. He also implicated William Neal and Ellis Craft. He claimed that they had been discussing the crime for months. William Neal had supposedly claimed that he was going to, quote, have carnal communication with Emma before Christmas Day. In his first confession, one of the few and one recanted, he said, quote, A few evenings prior to the 24th, I met Kraft, who stated that he was going to see Franny Gibbons and take her some black candy and that he was going to have intercourse with her, and he wanted me to come along. About midnight, the fatal night, we all started, Kraft, Neal, and myself— and when we got to the house, Kraft raised the window with an old axe and stepped in first. Neil followed, and I stayed behind on the porch, and afterwards I went in. Robbie was the first aroused and started to get up when Kraft said, quote, You had better lie still. Kraft then went to the bed where the two girls were sleeping and began to take improper liberties with them. Robbie said, quote, You had better stay away from there, when Kraft hit him with the axe. He fell back on the lounge and then plunged forward and fell fully six feet from the bed under the stairs where he was found. The girls screamed when Kraft jumped on the bed and they both said, George Kraft, what are you on here for? Emma also started to jump from the bed when Neil choked her and pulled her onto the floor. She fought him and I held her while he outraged her. Neil then struck on the head with the big end of the crowbar and she instantly died after throwing up in her hands. Kraft also had some trouble with Franny Gibbons, and he called on me to come help him. He then outraged her and killed her. Neil proposed killing the girls, and after they were dead, I took some coal oil, poured it over the bodies, and set them fire with a match. We then left the house." End quote. George later recanted this, and there were numerous versions of his confession, so we may never know the real story. William Neal was executed in 1883. Ellis Craft was executed in 1885, both by hanging. George Ellis was given a life sentence, but was later killed by a lynch mob. The Los Feliz Mansion Murders of 1959 Los Angeles is no stranger to grisly murders, but in December of 1959, it became home to one of the biggest murder mysteries with the Pearlson family murder suicides at a Spanish Revival home at 2475 Glendower Place in Los Feliz. At around 4.30 a.m. on December 6th, cardiologist Harold Pearlson struck his sleeping wife Lillian with a ball-peen hammer and bludgeoned her to death before she could even know what was happening and before she even had a chance to scream for her life. She died by asphyxiating on her own blood. The case would be different if it wasn't for his teenage daughter Judy, who wailed and wailed, screaming for her life as her father made his way into her bedroom. Neighbors could hear her as she yelled, Don't kill me. Reportedly, they could also hear her father instructing her to lay still and keep quiet. Using the same hammer he did on his wife, he struck his daughter, but not with good enough aim. She was able to escape, and after seeing her mother lying dead in a pool of her own blood, she ran to a neighbor's to get help. The two younger siblings, Joel and Debbie, had woken up by now. Their dad told them to go back to sleep, and his last words to them were, quote, this is only a nightmare, quote. He then took two doses of Nimbutal and 31 pills, believed to have been a tranquilizer or some form of codeine. By the time emergency responders arrived to the scene, he was dead. The estate was sold at an auction to husband and wife Julian and Emily Enriquez. Here is where it gets even creepier. The Enriquez family apparently never moved in. After their deaths, their son Rudy inherited the house, and he told the Los Angeles Times that he doesn't know that he wants to live there or even stay there. The house reportedly sat uninhabited and frozen in time for 50 years. And was only used as storage by rudy Enriquez. those who peaked and those who had been inside the house say that the house remained unchanged and appeared abandoned in time and in place as it had been before the murders rudy died in 2015. before the house went on the market and was cleaned up pictures of it were taken by photographer alexis vaughn the house pictures are super creepy the house looks like it's still lived in and everything seems to be the same as it was before the murders The mail is still piled together on the counter, and there's even cat litter from the family's long-gone pet. Though origins are unknown, gold ribbon for presents could be found inside the house. You can find these pictures online today, even with video footage taken by the photographer. So, I'm going to talk about one, and it goes against the format of my show about underreported and cold cases, because it's John Binet Ramsey, and I know that that's the most infamous cold case in modern history. Um, but you can't talk about Christmas time murder without mentioning John Benet Ramsey. So, in case you have been living under a rock or you're completely new to true crime, here is the case of John Benet Ramsey in less than two minutes. The murder of six-year-old pageant princess JonBenet Ramsey remains unsolved all of these years later. JonBenet was reported missing by her mother Patsy just before 6 a.m on Boxing Day in 1996. Eight hours later, her body was found in the basement of her family's Boulder, Colorado home. An autopsy revealed that she had been killed by strangulation and a skull fracture. There are hundreds of theories on who killed JonBenet, But errors in the initial investigation, such as the loss and contamination of evidence, the lack of experienced technical staff, and delayed interviews of the immediate family have made the case almost impossible to solve. One possible theory, which was supported by FBI profiler John E. Douglas, who was hired by the Ramsey family, is that an intruder broke into the house and killed John Panay. Another theory accuses her older brother Burke of accidentally killing her and her parents covering it up. In 1999, a grand jury even voted to indict the Ramseys on charges of child abuse resulting in death, but the DA refused to pursue the charges. Unfortunately at this point, short of a deathbed confession of some kind, there's not much hope that the murder of Benet Ramsey will ever be solved. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and season one of Murder on the Map. There's been almost 5,000 downloads and only 15 episodes, so I'm honestly blown away by your support. Hi, Mom and Dad. I know you're listening. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review to help more people discover the show. Murder on the Map is a radio-free Roscoe production. Our theme music is composed by Tim Beek. You can find more of his stuff at timbeek.com. I'll be back on January 4th with an all-new season, all-new cases covering new states, new theme music, and potentially a new co-host we'll see about that last part. Have fun out there and be careful. Happy holidays.